Happy New Year, Two Cities Church. <laughs> it's good to see you guys again. It is now we are in week two of the new year. And as people think about the new year, as you think about the new year, people tend to think about two different things. People tend to either think about new commitments or a new community that they need to be a part of or maybe a community they need to re-engage. People tend to think about resolutions that they need to make and relationships that they need to either dive into or restore. And, and let me just tell you this. Uh, if you're new, whether you're watching online or in the VHQ venue or you're in this room and you're new and you're going, what does it look like to get connected to our church? I'd like to go deeper in my commitments, deeper in community. Well, I'm glad you asked. We have the Weekender, okay? The Weekender is a, is a uh, event that we have. Uh, it's much more than that. It's to connect because we're not really an event-driven church. We're a relationship driven church to connect you and to help you go deeper in your commitments and in your community. And that's going to be January 22nd and 23rd. So it's already mostly full, but if you're new coming around or you're watching online and you want to sign up for that, that's going to be our first weekender of the year. We're really excited about it. Uh, a second thing I want to tell you about, we've talked a lot about Hold the Rope, okay? Over the last two months, we got to celebrate it. Last week, we told you over $362,000 came in. We had this last week, another $10,000 that came in. So really incredible. And, and here's what's exciting, right? right you, we've said this a lot, that we were not created, our souls were not created to handle as much bad news as we've been getting, okay, in our culture uh, over the last eight, nine, 10 months. So I want to share a little bit of good news. I was able to call of our, our partners, I was able to call the team lead who's over all of Mumbai, and I was able to call him and say, hey, listen, this is a really cool, this is a really fun phone call. Hey, our church raised a ton of money, and we would like to give you, imagine being on the other end of this phone call, $185,000 to go do more ministry. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Well, here, well here's, here's what he said back. He said, I'm in the United States. I said, amen. He said, I'm actually, I'm in North Carolina. He said, he said, I might be able to make it to your five o'clock service. So Jesse, if we could stand up. Just want to honor him. Um, just grateful. See, hey, we, we don't create downloadable experiences. I can't say his full name. We can't show his picture. Okay, thank you. You can sit down. Uh, but but we, and we couldn't do that in the morning services, okay? But it's just a real, if you get a chance to talk to him afterwards, just incredible. You know, I mean, whenever I'm around, I guess it's the, just, you know, I, whenever I'm around missionaries, I just, you know, I know they're not, you know, any more, they're just as Christian as us, but you just feel like somebody who's given 15 years of their life, and you talk to people over there and how much you and your family mean to them. So I just want to take a moment, just thank God for you and your family. Thanks for visiting us. And uh, you're, you're, he's heading back with his whole family on February 4th. And so we're just going to head back for another season and very, very hopeful about the future of ministry and mission in India. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you right now. Um, just to have um, this man here, who I can't say his name out loud. Um, just we're thankful for his family. We're thankful for what he represents. He represents the hope of the gospel to people. He represents the access point. We know the God, we don't have a relevancy problem. The gospel is relevant. Most people have an access problem. They don't have access to it. We're thankful for him and his team, his team that helps college students, his team that helps churches, his team that helps people in the slums his team that goes and reaches unreached and unengaged people groups. Lord, we're thankful that he literally has given his life to the people of India. May it be just a great example of what all of us should be doing here, Lord. Let us live on mission. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can type to, turn to Matthew chapter five, okay? Uh, what we're doing is, it's a great time to be new. I say that all the time, okay? But it's true. If you're new, okay, you're watching online, you're new. We are so glad you're here. It's a new year, right? The Bible's all about new, right? God gives us a new heart. God gives us a new mind. We're headed on a new, toward a new heavens and a new earth. So God is all about the new. 
Now, what, this is what's interesting. So because it's a new year, it's also we're starting a new series. And, and I want to let you know this. I always kind of just try to tell you, you know, behind the scenes, how are we thinking? What are we doing? Uh, we don't think in terms of sermons, although I love sermons. Oh, I love them. You know, it's my whole life. I love sermons. We don't even think in terms of Sundays. And I love Sundays. And we got full Sundays, three services all day we're here. We love it. But we don't think in terms of Sundays. We don't think in terms of services. We think in terms of series. Really, we do. And, and we're going to spend three months in 107 verses. We're gonna do Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. We're calling this series because we're really creative here, the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Because that's what, that, that's what this has been historically called. And, and there's a couple of desires why we're doing this and I wanna explain, okay? But one, this is Jesus' most loved and hated teaching. So lots of people love this teaching. If you read the early church, and you should do that every once in a while, C.S. Lewis always said, it's a good rule to read people who are, who've already died so you get a different perspective, okay? Like read Christians who are already with the Lord. And, and if you read the church, the, kind of the writings for the first three, 400 years of the church, um, what you'll find is they almost always, not completely and only, but they talk so much about the Sermon on the Mount. They talk about the Apostle Paul. They believe in all, all God's word was God breathed. Uh, but they have a particular obsession with the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe it's why they were so fruitful and successful. Do you know that it was loved even by non-Christians? You know Gandhi loved it, at least parts of it. And he said, you know, it was my motivation for my non-violence movement. Do you know that Martin Luther King Jr., he loved all the scripture, but he particularly loved the Sermon on the Mount? Do you also know that it's the most hated? Do you know, you ever heard of a guy named Nietzsche? Okay, Nietzsche, I know I always quote him as a bad example. Don't be like Nietzsche. You know, Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche hated the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I almost kind of, I don't even like to say out loud the things he said about it. But he said things like Nietzsche, famous atheist, he said the Sermon on the Mount is weak. He said it's powerless, it's soft, it's a weak Jesus taking care of a weak people, and it doesn't work in the real world. So it's the most loved, it's the most hated, it's the most quoted but misunderstood. If you ever heard anyone say, turn the other cheek, or go the extra mile, or, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you were to ask Americans, what is the number one Bible verse just not even a Christian, just an American. Hey, do you know a Bible verse? They would say, uh, John 3, 16, you know, something like that. And they might be able to tell you for God so loved the world. Guess what the number one memorized known Bible verse for Americans is today? Judge not lest you be judged. That's out of the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna get there in like two and a half months. Okay, we'll get there. It's toward, it's toward the end. Okay, we're gonna, we'll get there. Um, and so we wanna do that. And then here's, an, here's another big reason we're doing this is we really wanna be disciples of Jesus here. You know, 74% of last time they were surveyed, 74% of the people in Winston-Salem claimed a Christian identity. Now, we also believe many people are religiously lost, okay? But, but the word Christian doesn't have its same emphasis, its same dignity that it once had. So we have to say things like we're followers of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. And what we mean when we say that, just so you know here, because we want to define things here real clearly, we think a follower of Jesus, uh, what it means to be a disciple is that we're following Jesus and we're helping others find and follow Jesus, and if you're, not doing the, if, you're not, if you're not following Jesus, actively, intentionally following him, and then looking beside you and behind you and helping others find and follow Jesus, I don't know what you mean when you say you're a Christian. I really don't know, according to the, I, I, you listen to songs, you get free, free childcare for an hour here, and you hear a message. That's often not even very encouraging, okay? <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's like, but, but what we wanna do is we wanna be Jesus' disciples and what he's doing, and, and I want you to see this. So part of what I'm giving you today, it's kind of a longer intro because we're gonna get into it in just a moment, is he's giving us a, I wanna give you kind of a filter to look through. Um, Jesus is constantly telling them to be, not be like two different things. He's gonna say, don't be like the nominal Christians or the religious leaders of the day, and don't be like the secular world who doesn't know God at all. 
You'll, you'll notice this because he'll say things like, hey, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is don't be like the religious people who like they fast and they let everybody know they're fasting. And here's how they pray and they know, let everyone know they pray. And here's how they give and, and they let everyone know that they're giving. He's, he's, he's critiquing the church, right? Then we need this. With 516 churches in Winston-Salem, do we need to, including two cities, do we not, not need to be critiqued? We do. So he's critiquing the church saying, okay, and then he's also critiquing the world and saying, but you can't be like the world. You can't have sex and money like that, right? That's why he's gonna, he's gonna talk about those things. He's gonna say, hey, listen, I want you to be generous. I don't want you to store up treasure on earth. That's what worldly people do. They, they, they store up only treasure on earth with no value of treasure in heaven. So I think it's gonna be an incredibly exciting three months. We are actually, just to tell you where we're going, we're going to end on Easter Sunday together with the last passage, which is a great call to decisions. What's gonna be your foundation you're gonna build in? What are you ultimately gonna believe? So with that said, turn with me, that's all intro to, to Matthew chapter five, verse one. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter five, verse one. Here's what it says. Seeing the crowds, right? Because Jesus is always paying attention. And I want you to know that Jesus had times of obscurity and times of popularity. This is probably what happened in your life. There are times where you feel like no one knows me, no one's paying attention to me. Jesus had time like that, okay? Then he had incredible times of popularity where hundreds, sometimes thousands of people were following him. Here are the crowds. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Why? Because it's a picture of how Moses did things. You go up on the mountain to teach. That's why it says, look, when he sat down, now this is really cool. Back in the days when they would sit, the, 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 when they would teach, the teacher would sit and everybody listening would stand. You guys are lucky. Now it's reversed, okay? <laughs> I stand, you guys sit. That's okay. But, that, but it used to be the exact opposite of this. And so it says this, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So I want us to read it again because I want us to see the context. Now, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples came to him. This is great. So what it's telling us is that in every environment, every time the church gathers, there's both the true disciples and the crowd. And what's interesting is he's going to speak to both, okay? In fact, at the end, the crowd is going to go, whoa. I mean, we'll get there in three months. But the crowd is going to go, you teach like a guy who knows what he's talking about. You don't teach like the religious scribes. Like you teach like somebody who's living this out and who has authority and has something to say. So they were listening, obviously. But he's speaking really to the disciples and the crowd is listening, okay? And we understand that in every time the church gathers, every time, whether it's online or in this room, I know that there's always real followers of Jesus in here and potential followers of Jesus. There are really committed Christians and there's the crowd. And what you want to see is it, how do you turn a crowd into Christians? Right? Because it's, I mean, it's not super easy to get a crowd, but it's fairly easy to get a crowd. Create a cool environment, you know, create some music, tell people what they want to hear. I mean, it's not super, super easy, but it is easier to get a crowd than it is to build a church. I want you to see what happens in verse two. In verse two, we see what Jesus begins to do. Look, verse two, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, it's like, why does it say it that way, right? He opened his mouth. It's like, how else is he gonna teach them, right? Is he gonna do, is he a ventriloquist? No, he's not, okay? He opened his mouth and he taught them. It's for emphasis, saying, and we're gonna, tell, we're gonna be told what he's gonna say. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus comes and he has a teaching, preaching, healing ministry. This is very important to understand. He cares for them, bind. He has a teaching ministry, right? Do you have questions? He answers them. Do you need stories? We call them parables to teach you lessons on life. He'll teach them. This is why Christians have always cared about education. He, he, he cares about the soul, so he preaches. What's the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, there's a long answer to that, but Jesus it says that did both. The answer usually is in preaching, the person is calling for a response. I want you to do something with this. This is what God has revealed, and now I'm speaking to your soul about things of eternal significance and importance, and I'm begging you to respond. That's preaching. It doesn't always have to get loud. It doesn't always have to be intense, but it's always calling for a response. Jesus cared about the soul. Jesus also cared about the 
body. That's why he heals. But he always heals to affirm his teaching and preaching ministry. Okay, so isn't this cool? Jesus cares for the mind. He cares for the soul. He cares for the body. This is what the church has always done. There is no organization or nonprofit on earth who has done as much good for humanity as the church of Jesus Christ. Do you know that every time the church moves into a new area, I can tell you when the church moves into Mumbai, it does three things because it's what it does everywhere. It, it creates churches, it builds hospitals, and it starts schools. That's just what the church has always done. And so it's like, you look at our city, Wake Forest Baptist Hospital. Is there, is it, you ever wonder, why is it Baptist in the name? It's like, well, this is just what Christians do. So this is kind of the background. He goes up, he's about to teach, he realizes there's true Christians and there's a crowd. I'm gonna to try to put my arms around as many people as possible. But listen, Jesus is not going to compromise his teaching because more people got in the room. He's not, this is why, you know, we, 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 here we are not seeker sensitive. Seeker sensitive is I'm always concerned who's here and what they're thinking and, and, and if they feel comfortable and, you know, and, and see, we wanna be seeker sensible. I want every person in here to very clearly understand what I'm talking about from the scriptures. No matter if they, they are a non-believer, whether or not they're de-churched, unchurched, you know, what, me church, whatever we call it, okay? So with that said, I want us to look at verse three. So we get into the actual sermon itself. This is encouraging. Jesus' first words, I want you to see this. Jesus' first words in preaching are words of encouragement. Do you need some encouragement? I'm guessing that you do. 2021 has not started off great. It has been a hard last nine months. And here's Jesus' word. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. I wanna talk about this word blessed. We're gonna get into the Beatitudes, okay? Verses three through 12, this is what we'll cover for the rest of the night, is what we call the Beatitudes, okay? The Beatitudes is just the Latin transliteration of the word blessed, that's all it means. So we are, we are in the Beatitudes, but we have to understand what does this word bless mean? Because today, how do we use the word bless? Bless her heart, <laughs> right? Which means that girl's got no clue, I'm sorry, you know, right? Or, or we say, hey, could you real quickly say a blessing? Which means say a really quick prayer before we eat. Or we use 130 million times this last year, people use the hashtag, hashtag blessed, which really means humble brag. That's what that means, okay? <laughs> you can't believe I got this job, can't believe I bought this car, hashtag blessed. You know, it's like, okay, that was all about you. But, but so it's hard for us to understand what it means to be blessed. Now, here's what it means to be blessed. I'm gonna give you a couple different things because I want you to understand this. Uh, fundamentally and foundationally, it means the good life. Now, it doesn't mean the good life that you think, right? I mean, because Americans have a bunch of ideas about what the good life is. Right, the good life is, well, we know what it is. It's very simple. The good life is to be healthy, to be wealthy, to have lots of free time, to have lots of disposable income, to also be well-known but liked, and to have a tan, okay? <laughs> I mean, usually, because if you have a tan, that means you have time to get away and you can go to nice places and you don't have to do anything when you're in those nice places and, and uh, you know, you've got lots of vacation. And so that's the good life. Now, that's not biblically the good life, okay? Jesus, it's something deeper, okay? So blessed means, blessed is, is connect, it's all of the benefits for being joined to Jesus, it's to have God's approval and God's attention and God's affection. It's for God to look at your life and say, I want this, this is the type of life that I bless with favor and fruit. And it's hard because what I want you to see is as we get into this word blessed, it is going to be, when we're, I'm just gonna read them to you. It's going to be the exact opposite of everything that you and I have ever been told it means to be blessed. I mean, literally, I could not think of a more opposite thing. Jesus is gonna go, blessed are those who mourn. When's the last time you heard that? Blessed are you when you're really, really sad and sorrowful and full of grief. No one, no one talks like that. What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to build, and what he is going to do, and what he has been doing for 2,000 years, is he's trying to build an attractive alternative. He's trying to build a people that are different and distinct. 
and, and that are countercultural that we said last week are a city within a city. And do we, more than ever, don't we need those type of people? Don't we want to be those type of people? I want to tell you one more thing as we get into this, and I'm going to unpack the Beatitudes for us. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't read it through the lens of the gospel, you will get completely overwhelmed. In fact, part of the history of the Sermon on the Mount is that people read it and they don't want to be Christians. I mean, because we don't take Christianity very seriously. We don't take the Bible very seriously. We don't take religion very seriously. So we don't think this way. But like, I could tell you, there's many, because I did a lot of research this week. There's lots of people who read the Sermon on the Mount and goes, Christianity's not for me. I mean, because you're, I mean, you're, are you really willing to turn the other cheek? Are you really willing to, to really work on your lustful fantasy life? I mean, are you, real, are you really to get to the heart and root of your anger? You, you ready to love your, and forgive your enemies? It's like a lot of people who are seriously guys, I don't know, it's not for me. Well, here's what I want to explain. What we're going to see at the beginning is the Beatitudes, is the Beatitudes are spiritual states that the gospel creates. That's what they are. They're spiritual states because the most important part of you is your spirit, is your soul. They, so when you read these, blessed are the poor in spirit, you don't have to earn that. You don't have to work for that. It's a spiritual state that the gospel creates, the good news of Jesus. When you realize you're a sinner saved by grace, when you realize all you bring to your salvation is your sin, okay, when, when you realize that Jesus Christ lived the life you could not live, died on the cross for your sins, rose again, and is calling you to enter the kingdom of God, it, it's a, that message when welcomed and received and embraced in your life, the Beatitudes are, let me say it one more time, the spiritual states that the gospel creates. And so we get eight of them. Four of them are vertical, four of them are horizontal. Very similar to the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are all vertical, right? <laughs> don't worship idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath, those are all vertical. The, the last four are horizontal. They have to do with our relationship with man. So I wanna read you what the good life is, starting in verse three. If, you're, if you'll read this with me, verse three says this. Blessed... And when I read these, just think about how different our world is than what this says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're gonna notice, by the way, he begins and ends with the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, he'll say this again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to take each one of these and talk about them. First, he says poor in spirit, which is the exact opposite of what people want to be. Right? Here's what poor means, because we have, a, we have trouble as Americans understanding what poor means. Here's what poor means. I don't have enough. We almost have no context. So rich means, rich literally in the Bible means, it's a very simple definition, I have more than enough. There's different levels of rich, well, no, no question, right? Okay, we know that. But, but literally, like, if you want to go like, you know, are you rich? Well, well, when you've paid everything that you need to pay for your bare essentials, do you have some stuff left over? That would be considered rich. Poor is, is I don't have enough. And Christianity starts with our poverty, which is the opposite. Like, like in America, we want to act like we have everything together all the time. I've told you before, I spent four years doing ministry at Duke University. Duke University and the students at Duke University are different than any other students I've ever met my whole life. Okay, it's a top 10 school. And just so you know, what makes those schools different, because I didn't know this, what makes those schools different is, different is not the books they read. Okay, everybody reads the same books in college. It's not the classes they offer. Nope, everyone has mostly the same classes no matter where you go. Maybe to an extent, it's the professors, but I'll tell you really what it is, it's the students that it attracts. I would constantly meet 18-year-olds who I was like, uh, I, I'm intimidated by you. <laughs> I'm 10 years older than you, but I'm completely intimidated by your life, your experiences, your family, 
Uh, I, and so I would, I would meet these students. Now, here's what's interesting. There was a famous sociologist who he talked about his experience at Duke University, particularly with women in the, in the sororities. And he said there was this phrase in the statement at Duke that was tossed around in the sororities, and the statement was effortless perfection. And it, was really, and, he, and it took him as a sociologist. He was like, well, why would that be the phrase? And he said, well, what happens when you go to the best school you can ever get into? And then you get there, and everybody else is beautiful. And everybody else is, is athletic. And everybody else got the internship for the summer. And everybody else is double majoring. The only way you can get above them is to do everything they're doing and act like it's easy. And so he said what would happen is effortless perfection was I can do all these things and it looks easy. Except what it was is it wasn't. So women would spend three hours getting ready and then act like they just woke up. Not that any of you have ever done this, okay? But, they, but they, that's what they do. They, 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 would, they would act like they didn't need to study and then they would take Adderall and Ritalin to stay up all night to study. They would act like they weren't stressed out of their minds with all of the burdens that they'd taken on and then they would self-medicate with alcohol and drugs. This whole point was this effortless perfection. It breaks down. It's not even a possible thing. But this is what, this is what they were doing. Now, now, here's where Christianity is completely different. It says, we believe in being poor in spirit. We believe all we bring to our salvation is our sin. We believe that we are spiritually bankrupt, which is humiliating, okay? Right? Well, no, one, no one brags about going bankrupt. It means that we, it's the opposite of religion. Religion says, well, like, you know, you're not doing really well spiritually, but let me tell you how to fill up your little bank account spiritually. You know, pray, go to church, get in a community group, right? There's worldly versions of this. Reduce, reuse, recycle, ride your bike, shop at Whole Foods, Right? If you do those things, then you'll feel like a good person. You'll feel better than all the people who aren't eating organic and free range. And, you know, and you'll, you'll feel like you're a good person. And, the, and the, see, Christianity starts with saying, okay, I can't do anything. I'm completely poor. I'm completely broken. I'm completely needy. Here's, here's what we say here, that all we are is we are sinners saved by grace. That's at the heart and at the foundation of the Christian faith. I am a sinner. I'm a big sinner. And I need a lot of grace. The second thing he says, look at verse four. Then he says, blessed. So after you get poor in spirit, that, that's, that's the heart condition of repentance. The second thing he says is that you have to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, okay, the exact opposite of what you're told, what I'm told, what you, what you naturally feel. What do you want to be? Blessed are those who are happy, <laughs> right? Don't worry. Be, I mean, we love that song, okay? I won't sing for you anymore. Uh, but, 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 but we love, it's like, oh, we just wanna be so happy all the time. Um, and here's the thing about happiness, and, and we all know this kind of like intrinsically, but it's a terrible life goal. Because the first thing, the first time something bad happens to you or somebody you love, and that happens a lot to people, the first thing that happens, you realize, okay, this cannot be the goal of my life. So if it's not happiness, he, he, Jesus says, bless her this more. Now here's what's interesting. Our culture has no idea how to mourn. The funeral homes, by the way, are completely changing how they do things. This is really interesting. I learned this this week. That funeral homes um, are now trading in. That you know, you used to go to a funeral home and they would serve one thing, black coffee. <laughs> it's like everyone wanted to be awake and sober because it's a, a funeral. Now all the funeral homes are trying to get their liquor license. Why? Because Americans deal with death how they deal with, it, with everything else, drinking. They're trying to get dance floors put in. They're, they're no longer, less and less funerals have the body there because people don't want to be reminded of the body. The new phrase is it's a celebration of life. Fair enough. Because we celebrate the life, but we grieve the loss. The dress code used to be wear black and there should be a seriousness and a somberness to you when you enter. That's gone too. We've completely forgot what it means to mourn. Now, Christians, we need to be the, 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 the hopefully, 
the, the people, on, maybe the last people on earth who can hear a sad story. You know, who can say, look, I know like life is hard. I know that we live in a sinful world. I know that things are broken. I mean, this happens all the time. I'll be, I'll be with, um, like I said before, I love talking to people before and after services. And almost every week I hear sad stories. Last week I'm talking to someone. I said, oh, you first time guest. No, we've been here before. My sister was in a serious accident. And so we've not been able to come. I was like, oh, wow, okay. Pray for her and talk to somebody else. And how are you guys doing? Well, I mean, you know, if you could just keep this personal and private, but we're struggling with infertility. Oh, okay, we'll, we'll pray for that. You know, you, you talk to somebody else. We had a couple come for the first time last time. They, they recently lost their son. Oh, wow, okay, well, I can't imagine that. You know, we'll pray for that. Had another, another family come up to us. Hey, we, we've kind of reached the end of the rope with our daughter and we're trying to think about how to get her the right help that she needs because she's harming herself. And okay, well, we'll, we'll pray for that. And, we're gonna, and it's like, that was one Sunday. And what we do as Christians is we mourn and we mourn a couple things. We always first, you mourn your own sin, right? I mean, this is, this is the first thing you wanna do. By the way, this is the, the first part of grief, right? Grief is, is when, whenever you're grieving, the first thing you should do, now you don't, it doesn't mean it always works every time, it doesn't mean it always is, is effective every time and, and necessary, but, but the first thing you should always do when you're grieving is to basically say, what have I done to contribute to this? It's always start with, and the answer may be nothing, the answer may be a lot, the answer is probably somewhere in between, you grieve. But we grieve is we always grieve our own sin, we grieve our sin, and we also grieve the sinful condition of the world. This is why Jesus, right, when Lazarus dies, one of his best friends, he weeps, he grieves over death. He doesn't just have a theological answer and rationalize it and look to the future. And yes, he had hope and all that, but he grieved in the moment what was going on. When, when Jerusalem, when, when they're rejecting him and he gets up on the mountain and he overlooks Jerusalem and he thinks about the spiritual state of an entire city, which is what we need to do more when we think about our city, he grieves over the spiritual state and weeps over Jerusalem. And it says that if you will honestly do this, and by the way, mourning has in its idea confession, which is perfect. It's like, that's exactly what Christians do. We mourn, our, we mourn, we realize we are poor in spirit, and then we mourn, and then we confess our sin. And it says, if you will mourn, if you will be honest about your sin, you will find great comfort. If you try to conceal your sin, if you try to hide your sin, if you try to rationalize your sin, if you try to avoid your sin, if you, you, know, if you try to diminish your sin, okay, then you don't get the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The comfort of the Holy Spirit says, look, I am a big sinner. I've sinned. When a person's converted, they realize I've sinned in specific ways. I'm not just a sinner who needs forgiven. I've sinned against my spouse. I've sinned against God. Here's, let me tell you four or five specific things I've done. And I want to just confess that so I can receive the comfort of the Lord. So, so think about the order. The order is, is intentional. You're poor in spirit, verse three, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Verse four, you mourn, you're comforted. Verse five, meek, right? Blessed are the meek, what? For they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek is, it's a hard word, right? We don't think, it's like, have you ever used the word meek? Okay, when, if you wanna know what does meek mean, think of it this way, just break it in half. Me, eh. okay, that's it, okay? There it is, now you remember it forever, okay? So basically, that's what it means. It basically means, uh, it doesn't mean that you have a low view of yourself, right? Humility is not, uh, I think about myself, I think less about myself, it's I think about myself less, Humility is, is a right spiritual understanding of yourself. Today, everybody's obsessed with what's my Enneagram and what's my disc and what's my personality trait and what's my EQ and what's my self-awareness and fair enough. Uh, those are all good things that can help you. But, but sp your spiritual state is what's most important. And, and a meek person basically has a right understanding of who God is and who they are, right? That's what's gonna happen. By the way, if you're just like, if you realize you're spiritually bankrupt and you're the type of person who is very, very aware of your own mourning and your own sin, then what a meek person does is they talk a lot. They don't talk a ton about their strengths. They know their strengths. A meek person talks a lot about their weaknesses and talks a lot about their sins. And when you talk a lot about your weaknesses and a lot about your sins, you're always gonna find people around you who are gonna feel very safe to talk to you. 
right? You're gonna, you know, every once in a while you're gonna know, why do I wanna talk to them about my marriage? Oh, maybe it's because they've been really honest about their marriage. Maybe it's because they haven't acted like they've had it all together and they've been able to be really real with me. So he says, the, now meek is the opposite of what we have, right? We wanna act like we have it all together. We wanna have an inflated, filtered kind of version of ourselves that we show to the world. He says, if you will be meek, which is also in it, it's kind of a hard word to describe. It's also in it the idea of contentment. It says, you will, you will inherit the earth. Isn't that an interesting phrase, inherit the earth? Without getting into all that that means, the, the key thing is that you'll inherit it. Why? Because a meek person sees everything as a gift. You know, and one of the greatest things you can do in your life if you wanna start fighting sin, if you wanna start getting closer to the Lord, is you just start being thankful. I've told you this before, but, but I heard a counselor say that, that every time he saw a man or woman struggling with a serious sin or addiction in their life, they always thought that that serious sin and addiction was their main problem. If I could just stop whatever, then I'd be great. He said, in every one of the cases, their main problem is they weren't grateful. And if you just decide next time you're tempted, just, just fall on your knees and say, Lord, thank you so much. Thanks for everything. Thanks for my family. Thanks for my job. You can be spiritual things to be honest. A grateful heart is a meek heart that sees rightly God and rightly self, which leads to the fourth thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, this is amazing. He's telling us that your appetites set the direction of your life. And you know that, right? That every time I speak to middle schoolers, it doesn't get to happen a lot, but it used to happen more. Every time I get middle schoolers in a room, and they're hard to you know, have them fully say attention, pay attention. But when I get them in the room, one of the things I say to them every time, no matter how much time I have, I say, hey, listen up. Everything in my life that I've ever struggled with, I started doing when I was your age. Everything that I've ever struggled with in my life, I let in when I was in middle school. I wasn't a believer yet. And be very, very careful what you allow into your life and the appetites, the things that you begin to have an appetite for, right? Some of you wish you didn't have an appetite for some of the things you have an appetite for, right? You're like, I hunger and I thirst for it. And what's, what's terrible sometimes is you have an appetite for something and you feel like you don't even know how to satiate it. And sometimes you're brokenhearted. Part of, part of counseling issues is helping people walk through all the difficult things in their life, all the desires they have that can't be fulfilled. I'm single and I wanna get married. Oh, man, I feel for you. Maybe the Lord will open that up, but right now that you have a desire that's not being fulfilled. I wanna have kids and I can't. I'm heartbroken to hear that. We want to walk with you. We want to pray for you. You have a good desire. It's not fulfilled. What's amazing here is we have a good desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and God promises to fulfill it. Now, what does righteousness mean? I'm giving you a lot of definitions tonight because these are big words, and we hide behind them a lot of times. We just say them. We act like we know them. We have no idea what they mean. Look at what the root word of righteousness is. Right. <laughs> so it basically says this. Here's what, here's what I want. I hunger and I thirst. And by the way, it doesn't say I snack. <laughs> Right? I, I have an all-consuming desire for righteousness. What does it mean? There's three ways that righteousness in the Bible is talked about. Number one, I want to be right with God. That's what's called legal, or I don't want to bore you, or judicial righteousness. It, it, it's what leads a person to give their life to Christ and say, Jesus was in my place. He died on the cross for me. He rose again. He is the way that I can have a relationship with God. He is the way that in the life he lived, the death he died, the resurrection is my way to be made right with God. That's legal righteousness. Then there's what's called moral righteousness, which is I want to live the right way. I want to bring my life, my soul, my heart, my family in conformity to God's will and God's word. And it's going to take you all your life, right? You become progressively what God says you are positionally. It takes your whole life. And then the third is, is what we're seeing in our nation right now is social righteousness. I want to see, and it's what we're, we're all struggling with, is we look out and there's lots of things going on and we say, I want things to be right in the world. You know, in Winston as it is in heaven is the prayer for social righteousness. This is why we hate racism. It's why we hate abortion. 
It's why we try to speak out. We try to, as much as I can think about it, as much as I can see it, as much as it arises in scripture, we try to speak out against all types of injustice. But I mean, just imagine, that's, that's the first four things. It's like, imagine if you actually did that. If you saw the gospel so clearly that it created in you a poverty of spirit. And by the way, this is another important thing to notice. These are all these constant states. You never outgrow any of these. You're not like, you know, this, this is not JV Christianity and varsity Christianity is later. <laughs> you, you are always poor in spirit. You are always mourning. You are always hungering and thirsting. You are always viewing yourself rightly as, as a meek person. And when you don't do that, you just go back into this. You go, okay, all right, I gotta go back. But now I want you to see the second half. So that's our vertical relationship. I want you to now see our horizontal relationship, which starts in verse seven. I'll read you verses seven through 12. We see the vertical go into the horizontal. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So now it's saying, okay, that's how you were vertically. Now I wanna talk about what I just read, how you should be horizontally, how you should relate to each other in the church and in the world. The first thing he says is we should be merciful. Now what is mercy? I wanna talk about this because we, don't, we have to get our terms right to understand these things. Grace is different than mercy. Grace deals with the root of your sin. Your guilt, your shame, your need for forgiveness, your need for reconciliation and restoration to God. That's, that's what grace does. Mercy deals with the results of your sin. And, right, and, and sin has consequences in this life and in the life to come if we don't repent and trust Christ. But always in this life. So think about a guy who does something, you know, does something sinful and loses his job. He needs both grace and mercy, right? Grace is I wanna take the gospel and apply it to you right now. And I want you to receive the forgiveness of God and realize Christ died for that sin. I want you to confess it and forsake it and learn from it. I, I wanna deal with you at the soul level. That's what I do with grace. Mercy says, okay, you, you probably need a couple hundred bucks to help with groceries or your electric bill because you don't have money anymore. And I, I dealt with the root of sin, that was grace. Now I'm dealing with the results of sin, that's mercy. That's why, by the way, we call what we do in the city mercy ministry. Everything we do is intentional. It's because what we're doing in mercy ministry is we're dealing with the results of sin. I'm not always saying it's that person's fault, right? But what happens when you see a homeless person? Why do you not want to make eye contact with a homeless person? It's because you don't know what to do. You don't know the story behind it, it's too much. You might make it worse. You don't know if it's real or not. You don't know if he's lying to you or not. You don't know if it's his fault or his parents. You don't know why his family isn't around. You've got lots of questions. You're dealing with the results of sin. I'm not always saying his, somehow. Now, we are to be merciful people, which is the exact opposite of our culture. What is our culture right now? Cancel culture. Social shaming. Mob mentality. I don't know all the details of this story, but there was a girl, 17 years old. Many of you probably know more about the story than me. Three years ago, she was filmed on a three-second video saying a terrible word that should never be said and is wrong. And somebody who doesn't like her put that video on social media that happened three years ago for three seconds and it's destroying her life. And she's not able to get into the college she wanted to get into. Everybody's moving away from her. It's like, you know, that is, not, that, that is the opposite of the gospel. You did something, I will condemn you. I will shame you. I will cut off all communication with you. I hope life goes terrible for you. I will treat you as if you're dead. 
mean, that's what we do in our culture. If you make one mistake, it's like nobody, just so you know, nobody can live under that. Do you want everybody knowing everything you've ever searched for on the internet? You mean, we all, we all have cameras in our, in our pockets right now. The, the moment you do something dumb, do you want it filmed? And then maybe used against you in five years? It's like nobody can stand under that. You know, all communication is instant, constant, global, and permanent. It's like nobody can handle all of this information. And, and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to need to be gracious. So what does the church do? The church is tough on sin, but we want to be tender with the sinner as much as we can be. We, we want to we say, hey, sin's a big deal. We want to do what Jesus did. Hey, hey, does anyone condemn you? No. Do I condemn you? No. Okay, good. Go and sin no more. We want to we create a culture where kindness leads to repentance. We continually find people that are, that are visiting our church that are from all walks of life, that need help, that need hope, that need healing, that either they've done something sinful and foolish that has wrecked and ruined their life, at least for a season. I mean, I meet people like that probably once a month. Or they're connected, because that's one of the things about just being in relationships, or they're connected to somebody who wrecked and ruled their, ruined their life, at least for a season. And what do we do? Do we put the scarlet A on them? Do we say, you're done? Do we say in our mind, well, they'll never ever X, Y, or Z? It's like, no, we want to be a place of mercy. We want to use wisdom. We want to have time. We want to have wise counsel. We want to be prayerful, but we want to be a place of grace and a ministry where mercy can happen, a ministry and a place where mercy can happen. So he says, I want you to be merciful. But then look what he says next. He says, I want you to be pure in heart. He said, Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart means that you are separated from sin and you're single-minded. That's what it means. It's a mixture of those two ideas. You'll see it used interchangeably. Purity is, is either separation from sin and singleness of mind, which is the opposite of the values of our culture, which is I do whatever I feel like whenever I want to. I'm all over the place all the time. And I really like to just seek cheap, easy, instant physical pleasure. That's what I'd like to do. And in the midst of that, he says, actually, what you should do is you should be pure in heart. Now, purity, there's four types of purity in the Bible. I'll go over them really quickly. There's sexual purity, which is what we always talk about because it's with our bodies and it's a big issue. Um, there, is, there is speech purity. That's with our words. The Bible says a lot about that, that we should be uh, pure in our speech and how we relate to one another. We should build up, not tear down. Um, we should use wholesome language. Um, there is uh, relational purity. Relational purity is, uh, I don't want my relationship with you to become envious and bitter and gossiping and resentful and you know, unforgiving and all the things that, that are very easy to happen. But then the fourth is, um, is I think maybe a, the biggest struggle today in our age is purity in what the Puritans used to call lawful pleasures or purity in our luxuries. In other words, you know, Paul had a whole category. There are things that are permissible but not beneficial. And the, the whole thing is that we don't, what, what does it mean? How, has, how are you not being pure in your luxuries? Here, here's what I would say, if it's something that you're known for. Let me give you an example. There was a, there was a couple, they ended up not joining our team. And by the way, we're not the anti-alcohol church by any means. Um, but, but there was a couple that was about to join our launch team and they ended up not, they live in the Raleigh-Durham area still. Um, and every Instagram photo was of them drinking alcohol. And again, I'm not anti, I'm just like, first of all, are, you are welcome. Congratulations, you're now known for your liberty. And, you know, it's like, is this, if this is what you're doing publicly and put this all over your Facebook account and all over your Instagram, what are you doing privately? I mean, do you, you know, again, there's freedom in certain areas, but do we want to be known? If, if you're known for something, you're known as the drinking guy, you're known as the guy who knows everything about Netflix, you're known as the person who spends all their money on their vacations. Okay, there's freedom, I guess. 
But if you're known as that, if you're known for the areas that you can have liberty, you're probably not exercising purity in that area. Which leads to the final thing, or the second and final thing. He says, peacemaking. Now, peacemaking, I've talked about this at length in the past, but he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're, again, it goes, it's, it's a very timely message for us because we are living in a culture that is not at peace right now. And we need to learn how to make peace. And the, way, the only way you can make peace is by talking to people. That's it. This is why you know, people go, why is freedom of speech such a big deal? <laughs> Massive deal. Massive deal. Because if you can't talk about something, the next option is not good. It's fighting. That is the next option. You know, some people go, well, I don't know if I like politics. Fair enough. You don't want to know what the next option is. We have to be able to talk. We have to be able to debate. We have to be able to discuss. Part of what it means to be a peacemaker is, hey, look, I don't want to win. I want the relationship. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to move toward you. I'm going to have to have the hard, the hard conversations. And I don't need to be right, right? The, prob- the problem right now is everybody, everybody on the right wants to be right. Everyone on the left wants to be right. If you, if you want to be right at all, all, all times, and you're not willing to listen, you're not willing to learn, you're not willing to lament the other side, it's going to be very, very hard to have peacemaking. But he says, but blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called sons of God. Why? Because the son of God is the greatest peacemaker ever. <laughs> he came from heaven and earth to make peace. He made peace by his blood. And you'd think, if you, if you read all this, you go, okay, well, uh, all right, this is great. If, if a people is merciful, or people are merciful, and then they're pure in heart. It's like they're, they're trying to be separated from sin and singly devoted to the Lord. And, and they're committed to peacemaking. They're committed to like keeping short accounts. And by the way, when it comes to peace, it's like the Bible says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So like, you know, sometimes you're like, well, I asked for forgiveness and I shared my story and I told them how they hurt me. And it doesn't mean, peacemaker doesn't mean keep putting yourself in terrible situations where you get harmed and hurt. Peacemaking just says, I'm, as much as it depends on me, I'm trying to live at peace with you. You think with those three things, you think, well, life's gonna go pretty good for Christians. I mean, who wouldn't want to be around somebody who's pure of heart, who's a peacemaker, who's merciful, by the way, who's hungering for righteousness and honest about their sin and their struggles and mourning and grieving? Who wouldn't want to be around that? Well, according to verses 10 through 12, Jesus warns us of, of the final, what, what, is, what some commentators call the double blessing. So it's interesting. There are only eight beatitudes, um, eight statements, but there are nine blessings. The final blessing in verses 10 to 12 is a double blessing. Let me read it to you. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, right? Not persecuted for being a weirdo, not persecuted for being judgmental, not persecuted for posting long, goofy things on Facebook, okay? Not persecuted for taking issues, uh, you know, taking stands on secondary and tertiary issues. It says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, now he gets really personal. And, and this is a double blessing. When others revile you. So sometimes we go, you know, well, it was only, they only said things. We, we, we're like, are we only afraid of verbal persecution? No, Jesus promised and talked about verbal persecution even in the New Testament. He says this, blessed are you when others revile you and when they persecute you and when they utter all types of evil against you falsely on my account. And then Jesus says something very crazy. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. You can't do this unless you have an eternal perspective. For great is your reward, uh, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The final promise, the final blessing, the, the final part of God's, the good life, of God's approval and God's attention, of God's favor and God's fruitfulness is on those who are persecuted. Now what is persecution? Persecution is the collision of values. That's what it is. That's when persecution happens. Persecution happens when there's a collision of values and beliefs. 
And what's happening in our culture, as far as I can see it, and I, I don't know if I'm seeing it fully correctly, but what I think is happening in our culture is there is a collision between religious liberty, I am free to believe and say what I believe about Christ or anything, religious liberty and erotic or sexual liberty. And what has happened is over the last decade or two, we've decided that Americans have decided that erotic and sexual liberty is more important than religious liberty. So my desire to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, however I want, sexually, is, and you to celebrate it, affirm of it, and never say anything negative about it, that's my greatest right. Okay? And it, it, it's a massive, there's no, there's no coming out of that, okay? There's, there's no, we cannot, the church will have to be the last people to step down and say, or to, to stand up and say, listen, this is, I, I'm, don't shoot the messenger, you know? I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. But this is what God has said about marriage, about family, about sexuality. There's, there's three types of persecution that happen historically. There's what's called violent persecution, physical persecution. Okay? This is what you read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is what we, these, these are the stories that Christians actually have told each other, encouraged each other for years. Stories like that of George Rober, who was about to be burned at the stake. And as he was going to be burned at the stake, he hugged the stake and said, I'm almost home. You're like, who, you know, do people like that exist? They do, and they have. In physical persecution. The second is verbal or social persecution. And it's hard, right? We don't, in America, we don't fear the raised fist. We fear the raised eyebrow, right? I mean, the opposite of persecution is what we all want, which is popularity, <laughs> right? My kid, my oldest daughter, she's gonna be nine this month. She constantly is telling me, uh, maybe I'm dancing with her, being goofy, singing a song. You say, and she says, dad, you're not cool. You know, <laughs> and then, you know, I'm like, listen, you're nine years old. You don't know what cool is. You don't know, um, but I'm not cool. But you know, it's just like, but there's this great desire to be cool. There's this great desire to be popular and it, it's hard to be excluded. It's hard to be not invited or uninvited. It's hard when people make fun of you. I remember the first time, I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant to even call it persecution, but I remember the first time I experienced anything like this. I was a brand new believer and, and someone had given me a leather, little leather Bible had my name on it engraved in gold, okay? And it was in my backpack. I was at a public high school in Pittsburgh and a very cool upperclassman found my backpack and, and opened it up. And I guess it was hanging out or whatever. And I remember he grabs it and he's flipping through it and he's reading random things out of it and he's making fun of my golden name on it. And, I, he's, and he's, as he's making fun of me, again, I've been a believer for three or four months, but I'd already read the whole New Testament. I was a really hungry new believer. And I remember I had a lot of thoughts, but I can remember 16-year-old me thinking, I'm a real Christian, it, it was the weirdest thought. I, I was like, I, it was the moment that like, I, I really believe this. Somebody else is making fun of me about this and I'm, I mean, I'm not happy about it, but I, I still believe it. I'm still gonna, I'm gonna ask for my Bible back nicely and I'm gonna still follow Jesus. And, and there's this cleansing and this purifying thing that happens in persecution. Now, that, now what, what's happening in our society is, is not the violent, it is the verbal, but it's also the economic, okay? And I don't know what that's gonna look like. But I, we do know that there are certain careers that probably Bible-believing, evangelical, Jesus-loving Christians are never gonna be able to get again. Are you gonna be able to get tenure at Harvard you know, in psychology if you're an evangelical Bible-believing Christian? No, probably not. They, I don't know how many careers we're gonna have to check the quote-unquote diversity box with its list of 75 million things on it that we affirm, agree, celebrate. And if we don't affirm that and don't celebrate that, then we can't partake in it. I'm not sure, I'm not a doomsday person, but it's interesting. So I think what Jesus is getting us ready to is, to, is, is saying, okay, you need, we need to actually genuinely believe 
that God is going to greatly use us and there's gonna be a great blessing. What's interesting is we're gonna look next week at what does it mean to be salt and light, but there's no break in the paragraph. So everyone's like, you know, I wanna be salty at work and I wanna be bright at work and and we're gonna talk about that and I believe that's a good application. But the most foundational um, interpretation of that verse, what does it mean to be salty and bright? It means to suffer well. It's right in the context. That's what it means to be salty and bright. When the gospel goes forward, you always get two things. You get persecution and converts. In the the church, we have for a long time just decided, okay, we don't want either. (laughs) Really? I mean, the people that I know, right? I I had an opportunity to talk to a missionary in in Dubai. And this was about a couple years ago. And he said, you know, uh, we're seeing a lot more converts. And he was telling the story to a group of us. He was stateside telling us the story. And we're all like leaning in going, what did you do differently? Because he'd been there for a long time. He said, we're taking more risks. He said, and whenever we do that, we've gotten a little more pushback and some people have said some more things. But as we step up, those two things, read the book of Acts, both of those show up together. Here's the encouraging thing. Jesus Christ doesn't ask us to go anywhere he hasn't gone. This, this story started with Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, going up on a mountain to teach. The gospels end with Jesus going up on a different mountain, Mount Calvary, not to sit down, but to lay down on a cross and die. So that every one of the blessings we talked about is a blood-bought blessing. It's a blessing. He's saying, will you trust me? Will you think more about the kingdom? Will you think less about the culture? Will you begin to define the good life based on who I am and what I've promised? Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lord, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Lord. You said it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, let us lean in and believe that. Lord, give us just a greater picture of the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. Give us a great picture of who you are, of what you've done in your life, your death, your resurrection that overwhelms us, Lord. Help the gospel to create these spiritual states that we see, Lord. Lord, do a great work in us, individually in our families, in our community groups, and in our church over the next three months as we study this sermon together. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.